Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Parker. And Parker was married to a manipulative, controlling abuser. It's a story of spiritual abuse, entitlement, escalations, suicide threats, and custody. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, I have Parker. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Brandon. It's so great to be here. Well, it is great to have you here. And if you want to be a guest like Parker is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And please do send in your stories. We can never have enough stories. And today you are going to hear Parker's story, and there is a content warning on this episode as we do discuss uh, sexual assault in this episode, sexual abuse in this episode. So there is your content warning right there. And with Parker's story today, you're going to hear everything that she's gone through. And it, it's a story where things kind of escalate in her. Her partner is manipulative and, and really knows what he is, is doing. So just a really big thank you to Parker for being here. And now I'm just going to get out of my way and your way. Parker, the floor is now yours. Thank you. Growing up, I, on the outside, we had this perfect little family, uh, three brothers and myself, the only girl, and then mom and dad, um, they've always been together. They're still together. It was obvious that they loved each other. Uh, they loved us, uh, but they were Jehovah's witnesses and we were raised in the Jehovah's witness religion from the time that I was born, uh, for all of us. Uh, so along with that came, came a lot of pressure to, to have to be perfect. Uh, we always had to follow the rules. The father is the head of the house. Uh, the man in any house is the head, uh, men in the congregation are your head. 
Uh, and then at the top of that organization is another group of men who, who are your head. Uh, so when you have, you know, this constant uh, teaching that girls and women are to uh, essentially submit to their head or submit to men, uh, men were logical thinkers and women are emotional. For the most part, when I was young, it was okay. Uh, things we had, we had good times. We played. Uh, my nickname was a chatterbox because I talked all the time. Uh, although I had to learn to be quiet, I had to learn when it was okay to talk. When it was my turn, uh, women need to be quiet. Women aren't allowed to teach. Uh, in fact, if you if you were to teach or pray in front of a man, even even a boy. Uh, who was baptized, your own son, if they're baptized, uh, or if they're of an age, like nine or 10, that they could potentially become baptized, you literally have to cover your head to teach or pray in front of them uh, and with anything. So I remember times later on in life, covering my head with a napkin <laughs> or a scarf, uh, because that's how you show that you are subject to the headship arrangement uh, where men uh, essentially is in control. So you came to the show through Valentina, who is from, uh, an August, 2020 episode, and you are both JWs and you met in a former JW group. So when you talked with Valentina, you know, how did both of you view your experience? Yeah, well, you laugh about it uh, and you look back and go, oh, my God, that is so crazy. And how were we ever so naive? And how did we not see what what there is in the world? Um, Because we were scared of the world. We were taught that. And and that's what they called everyone outside JW is the world. (laughs) And so we we were scared of the world. If you if uh, somebody was shunned, then uh, they used a term that you were thrown to the wolves um, because that's how scary the wolf the the world is, and you would just be eaten up and devoured. And yeah, so when you come out and and you talk to other XJWs. Uh, and you have this whole other new perspective, uh, you kind of, it's almost, uh, it's almost surreal to think that at one point in our lives, we were that naive, that things could be so different than uh, what had been indoctrinated in us uh, time after time after time for your, your entire, chi- entire childhood uh, and into your adult life too, depending on how long you stay. Um, so what I, what I remember of my mom growing up, uh, she was quite quiet about her own upbringing. She was not an easy person to talk to. It wasn't, she wasn't someone that was approachable. Uh, she came off, uh, as judgmental of other people, uh, as most JWs are, uh, because that's your it's just ingrained in you to judge everyone else, uh, especially everyone within the organization, because they're not doing enough. They didn't 
study the Bible, but essentially the JW publications enough. They didn't participate enough. They didn't preach enough. Uh, or they didn't have the kind of boundaries that you're expected. Maybe they watched a, a movie that was adult rated instead of PG or, or even a general or PG movie that that had magic in it uh, or something else that was deemed to be uh, inappropriate or unacceptable. And then my dad, like he was, he was really mild and meek and, and kind hearted. Uh, and, and, you know, I was telling a friend the other day that I, I only remember two times that my dad got really angry. Um, and one, one was actually kind of funny because he was doing plumbing like in the kitchen sink. And my brother and I were goofing around and playing whatever. And then my dad has been frustrated working at it for hours. And then all of a sudden he, he comes up from under the sink and he, and he yells at us. If you two kids don't get the, you better get the fuck upstairs before I start swearing. <laughs> And I, I'd never heard my dad swear in my life. So we ran upstairs. Um, but the other time I was in my teens and, and, uh, and, and I was telling my friend this story the other day, how I was, I was misbehaving. I was being a teenager. My dad drug me across the kitchen floor as I protested. And, and when I told my friend this story, I, I excused it because a it didn't happen very often. It was just that one time, and b I deserved it because I was being a brat. I was being mouthy, and and my friend's reaction of shock took me off guard, and it made me think about it because if I saw someone do that to their teenager, I I would. A, I'd, I'd probably be traumatized from watching them do it. B, I would intervene and I would not blame it on the teenager, even if they are being mouthy teenagers. I would expect that the adult in the situation would know how to control their temper and, and set a good example for the teenager. And, and yes, discipline them, but not in that manner. So when I was... When I was 14 years old, uh, my oldest brother, uh, his best friend was 20 and, and he sexually assaulted me repeatedly over months. And so I finally got the courage up and, and, and I went and I, and I talked to the elders, uh, because there's all this like shame and guilt and, and in, in JW, you have to report if somebody does anything wrong or you're complacent and you are just as guilty. And, and, and so I talked to the elders. So I'm 14 years old and in a very, a shy 14 year old or a, a protected, I guess, 14 year old. So I didn't know a whole lot about the world and uh, I didn't know much about sex. I didn't know my parents had had one conversation with me when I was 12. Uh, well, my mom did. And um, so I, I reported this to the elders. So it was two elders, so two men, 14 years old, and I'm sitting in front of two men. 
in a in a small room, like rows of chairs behind me. I'm in the front row. In front of me are two men um, behind a, a table, and and my dad was there. And you know, I was thinking about this even earlier today. I, I don't remember exactly where dad was sitting, but I don't feel like he was sitting right beside me because I don't remember him comforting me. I don't remember him putting his arm around me. In fact, I don't remember him saying anything at all as these two men drilled me, interrogated me uh, for every little detail that they could get so that they could then judge me and determine if I had done wrong or not. And, and that asking me questions that like, I didn't even understand what they meant. I hadn't been exposed to it. I didn't know what it was. And, and, and so my dad, he, he sat there while that happened. And then, and then they made an announcement in the congregation in front of the entire congregation that I, and this other person, they publicly reproved us. So basically they made an announcement from the congregation that, um, I was being disciplined for my part in this, for immorality. Uh, So from there, I really didn't get support from my family. Uh, They told, and my dad was an elder in the congregation as well at the time. Uh, He always has been. He still is. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sorry, so what are your feelings when that happens? Like, how, do you, how are you feeling when that specific moment happens? And, and not just, it's not your, just your congregation here, you know, your family, your, your dad is compliant in this as well. Everybody I had ever known my entire life, sitting in the congregation with all these people looking at me while this announcement is being made, and they don't specifically say what you're being disciplined for. Um, but there were a lot of rumors going around. And because he was disciplined at the same time, uh, that perpetuated those rumors. And um, I had to sit there and, and listen to it. And, and so I'm trying to be strong. These men are, are supposed to be men of God. And they're supposed to have God's favor in his spirit when they make these decisions and so these decisions are right and now i have to figure out how i fit into this and and so i need to 
um, sit there and take it and, and try to get God's favor back again. And, and when you go through something like that, you're already struggling with so much guilt and shame. And then you have these men made it essentially worse. So I was devastated. I was alone. I had no support. I had nobody that believed that I was an innocent victim in this. They expected me to scream and yell and fight off a man, but I didn't know how. I was taught to be meek and mild and obedient, to trust everybody inside the JW organization and nobody outside of it. And, and so I have nobody on the outside I can trust. I have nobody on the outside I can truly tell my full story to. And I have nobody on the inside that is supporting me, protecting me, telling me it's not my fault or that I'm going to be okay. Um, and so, so they, the elders had given him uh, the heads up and said, if you don't, which I'm surprised they did this at all, but maybe because maybe my parents were going to, maybe because my dad was an elder too, I don't know. Uh, if you don't go to the police, then we will, which gave him also, you know, the, that first story, the first one who comes forward kind of vibe to the police. So he went to the police. He didn't tell the truth. He didn't tell all of it, uh, but they didn't charge him. And then I, I kept going to these meetings with my parents, he had stopped going for five or six months. He started coming again. And when he started coming again, so I'm now like 15. I remember sitting there and just crying and, and I couldn't stop. And I would get up and I would go sit in the car and wait in the parking lot in the car by myself until my parents came out after the meeting, which is what they like church. And um, after they visited for a long time, after like an extra half hour or so, and, and these were long meetings. And I, and I did that for two or three months. I would go, and then if he was there, I, I couldn't handle it. I'd be crying, and I would go sit in the car and cry by myself until my family came out and we got to go home. And, and we had two or three meetings a week. And uh, after a few months, I, I stopped going. I couldn't. I just... I just couldn't emotionally do it anymore. And uh, a few months after that, my parents changed and went to a different congregation trying to get me to go back. But by that time, I had started hanging out with other friends. I had started drinking, smoking, uh, which later then was sex, too, because I felt like it was already taken away from me. So it didn't matter. Nothing mattered anymore. And I wasn't worthy. And nobody else cared. And so why should I? When I was 16, so through all this time, like, the police didn't charge because at the time, the law was at 14, you could consent 
to sexual activity with somebody of any age. It didn't matter. Uh, they could be 70 and you could consent. And so then it becomes a matter of having to prove whether there was consent or not. There was no like a statutory um, piece of the law in place at that time for an age limit uh, within certain ages like there is now. But I remember just having this burning desire to, that that was so wrong and it was so unjust. And I, and I wanted to advocate to change that law. And, but I couldn't, I couldn't even talk about wanting to do that because one JWs, you can't be involved in anything political. You have to meet, remain completely separate from politics uh, because your allegiance is to God and not to man. And you have to wait on God to make things better. And, and if you can't do that, then you're not faithful enough. And so then you have this extra guilt that I'm, I'm not faithful enough because I've endured all these things. And then I, you know, for a long time, I kept going and then I want to change this law, but I can't because now I'm, I'm just, I'm not faithful enough and I have to wait on God to do it. So when I was 16, I went back to the police because it was still eating at me. I interviewed him again and they gave him a lie detector test and he failed the lie detector test, but they still didn't charge him. And I, I was devastated. The police wouldn't help me. My parents wouldn't help me. He would drive down my street on his motorcycle. Uh, so I'm, when I walk down the street, if I hear a motorcycle, I was looking over my shoulder. I was scared. And, and he, had, he had made threats like that he knew people from Hells Angels and that he, they made little girls disappear like me. Yeah, so I was scared and I was, I was dealing with it all the time and nobody would help me. In fact, they blamed me and, and punished me publicly and so I went took a bunch of pills and I I didn't fall asleep I threw up and I threw up a lot and I couldn't stop my dad took me to the hospital and and the the nurses there were really insensitive so I part of my release from the hospital is I was given um I had to go get counseling and, and I went for a few sessions, but it wasn't productive because I couldn't talk about my story. So I, I, I went to the counseling, but I really didn't get much from it because I, I was quiet and I was at the weight of this vast organization on my shoulders. And, and I had to protect that organization. I had to protect God because for some reason he can't protect himself and he needs this girl who had been abused and traumatized to do it for him. So, you know, very soon after this happened, you're still 16. And then you eventually meet the person that the story is about. And you've already been through a lot in your life at this point. So I guess walk us through the meeting of this person and, you know, give us a picture of who he is and how he treated you and, you know, what you liked about him and vice versa. And um, take us from here. Yeah. Uh, so 
I continued to use drinking to cope, um, smoking and hanging out with friends that I wasn't supposed to hang out with. And I, I was going out with my, my cousin and her boyfriend and her boyfriend's best friend, uh, I met at the time he was dating somebody else and, uh, we just, we went to a movie and we're all hanging out. Uh, and then we had drinks and, you know, he was, he was just, he was fun and he was the life of the party and it didn't put a whole lot into it then. Uh, but it was a few months later that I met him again. Uh, so by now this, a few months later, I'm now 17 years old and we're at a party at a house party and everybody's drinking. Of course he, at, at some point later on in the night, he's, he's laying on the couch. I'm sitting on the couch and he's telling me all about his girlfriend that he just broke up with or they broke up. Um, and how awful she was and how bad she treated him and how she cheated on him. And, and, and we just, we talked for hours and I don't know, I think I, I was at a place in my life that I was really vulnerable and I was, I needed love and I needed attention. Um, I needed to be accepted. I needed somebody to see me. And, and, and eventually he did that. We hung out a couple more times in with friends. Uh, and then there was one night where we, we stayed up all night, just listening to the same stupid song on repeat and talking and laughing and, and I had talked to him and told him all the stuff I had been through and he was understanding and he hated that I had been through that and he would never do that to me, of course. Um, and he, he listened and he, he even respected boundaries when there was a couple of times or a few times that when it came to sexual activity, I was like, I, I, I can't right now. If I were having some kind of a flashback, something would remind me. And, uh, he was good. He was understanding and, and, uh, he, he didn't push it and was okay. And just would hold me that kind of, drew, that drew me to him. He wanted to talk to me all the time. He wanted to be with me all the time. He would drive me back to I would go to work. He'd hang around in the city while I went to work uh, for hours. So he he put a lot of time, invested a lot of time into being with me. He listened. Initially, he respected boundaries. After four months, he he asked me to marry him, and I said yes. In the in the fall of when I was seventeen, and then in December, I moved in with him at his parents' place. 
he was really close to his mom. And I saw that as being a sign initially of respect for women. I was really wrong. It was actually a really, really kind of enmeshed, messed up relationship. But at 17, I thought, oh, he's close to his mom. So he, he respects women. Uh, but we would, he didn't even have a door on his bedroom. And his mom would come in in the morning sometimes and and rip or try to rip the blankets off of us, uh, which is really messed up. Um, after being in there for probably about six weeks, I found out I was pregnant. And another couple of months after that, his mom wanted to kick me out. And, but not him. He could stay. But she wanted me to go. And blamed it on dad. Dad says, no, it's her. You can stay as long as you want. Uh, so he's going to, he, he wants to stay. And, and I was like, no, like, if you want to stay, stay. But I'm, I'm not welcome here. I'm not staying here. So I'm going with or without you. So we moved out at the end of the month. And how are you feeling when you get pregnant? Are you excited about it? Are you thinking, oh, this is bad. This isn't a great idea right now. Um, or were you just like, this relationship is going well. This person seems like they care. I can do this. And now I'm like outside of being in the uh, JW world and I'm living my life. And you're kind of thinking it in that terms or no. Yeah. Well, kind of, a mix. Um, so yeah, I was young, but I'd been, I'd been trained my whole life that women raise babies <laughs> and, and JWs get married young. Lots of them are getting married 18, 19 years old because it's better to get married than to have sex outside of marriage. And so they push for young marriages and then, and they have families early. So that part didn't necessarily scare me. And at, at the time, things were good still with him. Um, so on, on one hand, yeah, it's a little bit scary. But at the, on the other hand, I was kind of excited too. And, and I remember even when I was young, I, I pictured myself as a mom. And, and so, that, so that was okay. Uh, but where the JW piece came into it is, even though I wasn't going and I wasn't practicing, and I, and I hadn't yet, hadn't been baptized. I had a, a, a strong desire to go back. And the fact that I was now having a kid made that intensify so much because now I'm responsible for this child in this child's life. And I've been taught if I'm not in God's favor, and if you're not baptized as a JW, then you are going to die Armageddon. Armageddon is going to be a very painful, horrible death. It's, it's going to be awful. And, and it's coming really soon, just around the corner. We're in the last days of the last days. And it just it's like a matter of, of years, like a couple of years. It could happen any day now. Is, is what had been ingrained in us. And 
So not only now am I not going to make it because I had a hard enough life that I was okay if I just died. I'm like, okay, fine. Take me out of Armageddon. Um, But now I'm responsible for this child. And I'm also taught that part of that means if I'm not in God's favor when that comes, then any children that I have will also die this horrible, horrific death, which could be just in a matter of a few years, maybe even less. And, and so now I have that huge responsibility on my shoulders. So my son, our, our son was born. And then I, I started going back and the JWs were studying with me, getting me prepped so that I could get baptized. So at 18, I, I had my son. And then at 19, I start going back. Uh, I'm studying with them. They're prepping me to get baptized. Uh, and then I, I actually found out I was pregnant with my daughter on the day I got baptized. Uh, at So I was 20 years old when I got baptized um, and now responsible for two kids. So when I went back and, and got baptized, I... I was all in, like I worked so hard. I was faithful. I was loyal. I was, I was at all of the meetings or church and I was preaching and praying and, and just like hardcore. And, um, and it was tough because my, my husband did not like that I was going and that I was doing that. And, and he would make it hard he would start a fight as I was on my way out the door to go to church or he would be mad at me when I got back or fix my car on that day so that I couldn't go or have to take his truck that was like old and dirty and a standard. And yeah, so it was hardly, I was doing it with two little kids, but, and then at the same time, he's, he's starting to go, to change and be different. And he's given me the silent treatment for a week or weeks at a time. He won't talk to me. He won't tell me what's wrong. Uh, he's just getting, he's angry. You can just, you can cut the tension with a knife. Uh, I ask him something and he, I'd be lucky to give a nod. Uh, unless it's, you know, do you want spaghetti or lasagna? And he might say lasagna. <laughs> he's getting something out of it is it like he's just separating his life from yours and doesn't show interest in your life anymore and is kind of just un is he just unresponsive and is he if he's besides unresponsiveness is he putting you down in in certain ways or is it starting off here as like silent treatments and withholding so it started off with silent treatment and withholding, but with intention to hurt. The only thing that would bring him out of it would be me groveling at his feet, essentially. And no matter how he treats me, I have to be a good submissive wife. It's essentially like having, and they even describe it as this, having a head transplant 
So my brain, it's like, I no longer have my brain. My husband is my brain. He is the one that makes all of my decisions for me. Whatever decisions he makes, I need to support them. Even if I know that they're bad and they're wrong, uh, I need to support his decisions and do my best to help make it work out. Uh, my dad's advice was to make him his favorite meal, his favorite dessert, make sure the house is clean, the kids are quiet and looked after, uh, nobody's disturbing him, and and just do or say to him whatever you need to do. If you whether you did anything wrong or not, like apologize to him, and and I did, and and I. I created a monster. When you're so, so when you're describing what you just said at that time, do the feelings from the sexual assault come back in any sort of way of how you are supposed to act and how you uh, everything's kind of being reinforced at that time? Or are you disconnected from that at that point? Yeah, I think at that point, I hadn't yet processed the connection. Um, and, and really, both of those then are connected back to the teachings and how I was taught to submit and obey. And that I, I had to do whatever it took to keep the family together and for my, for my husband to be happy and for him to stay in the relationship. And yeah, so I don't, I don't think it, it wasn't necessarily that that was coming back. Um, but I think all of that, including the teaching was what all had a role in how ingrained in me it was um, as to what my place is in respect to men in my life. So this was just the beginning and eventually he turns into a monster. So what were the escalations from here? Yeah. So while we were still uh, living where we were at the time, one of those things when things started to get worse, uh, we were at my mom and dad's. Uh, it was at Christmas time. Of course, we didn't celebrate Christmas, but we were we were there. And so everybody's getting together. It's this like crazy blizzard outside. We've had probably a foot, foot and a half of snow in a, in a short period of time. He was going down. He went downstairs and he isolated himself and he won't talk to anybody uh, like anybody, not even just me. I would go down and check on him to see he's okay. I went down to see if he wanted to come up for dinner, but he was sleeping when I went down. And so we had dinner and then I, I go to leave with some of my family to, to run to Walmart. And, and he comes up and he comes outside as we're getting in the car. He's like, where do you think you are going? And I'm like, Walmart and he is just he's angry because 
He's been downstairs and he's saying, nobody checked on me. Nobody asked me to come for dinner. I've been down there and I've been feeling alone. And it's been everybody else's responsibility to do this for me and to make me feel better kind of thing. And, and you didn't do enough to, to make me feel better. And so I, I'm just, I don't even know what to say. So I, and we're all outside standing there ready to leave. And he demands that I drive him home because he can no longer be there uh, because of how we're treating him. And I said to him, I said, um, well, it's a blizzard and there's like a foot front half of snow on the ground. And so I said, I would, we're heading out to Walmart. We won't be too long. Uh, how about when I get back, we'll see how the roads were and we'll talk about it then. And he just got mad and went inside. And when I got back, his mom and and uh, our neighbor had driven. Well, normally it's a 45-minute drive. When we got back, they, they were almost there. They were on their way uh, to come pick him up and, and rescue him. Uh, and then he would accuse me of cheating on him. Uh, of course, I, I was still JW now at this time and baptized. And... Uh, I was studying the Bible at somebody's doorstep with them. So I, I had to stop. Someone else had to go call on them and talk to them and preach them because I, I couldn't because my, my husband was accusing me of cheating on him with him. And I always was with somebody else when I went, I never went alone. And then, um, he just, he wouldn't take, he wouldn't believe me, even though he believed me, if that even makes sense. Like, and talk to me for two weeks at least and and would just be angry um even our son once wrote this poem he was in grade two and uh, he had to write a poem about his family and he said my my mom's eyes are as blue as a bluebird and my dad's eyes turn green when he gets angry and and he was angry a lot and and you could just everybody could just feel it. Uh, the kids couldn't. They spilled a glass of water on the kitchen floor. He'd start yelling at them, and if they were crying and didn't want to get ready to go somewhere, he'd be like, "That's it. We're not going." Or you guys, I'm not going. He wouldn't go, and then be mad at the kid kids and and blame them. It was because of their behavior that he's now behaving this way. So eventually your ex wants to become a JW. So walk us through this. He, he eventually started studying with JWs. And uh, after studying for a while, he, he decided that he wanted to make a, a go of this and he wanted a better life for us. And in order to be able to do that, he needed to get out of the small little town that we lived in. He wanted to move across the country where my brother and his family lived. And within two weeks of him making that decision, our house was for sale. Our minivan was packed and we hit the road and we headed across the country for a new life. And um, when we got here, the first eight months was probably the best eight months we'd ever had. When you're a JW or not JW, but you're, you're studying to be a JW, you get a lot of attention at the beginning. So you're moving to a new place and you're studying 
and all these people are giving you attention and inviting you over and being your friend uh, because they're trying to win you over. But eventually that wears off. So the first eight months when he was getting all this attention was, it was great. And then it wore off and he started to change again. And then he decides he's going to get baptized. And I, and I told him like, don't, don't do it for me. Don't do it. Cause you think it's the next step or someone else wants you to do it. Uh, but he, he insisted. And then it was after that, that things really, really started to go downhill. The attention had worn off. He's now baptized. So he's, there's some, I guess, responsibility now on his shoulders and an excuse. So as he knows the, their teachings, it became, well, you need to be a submissive wife and I'm your head and you need to do this and you need to do that. And you're not being, you're not good enough. And, um, even use sex, like, even went to the elders and tried to tell them that I wasn't feeling um, my wifely dues. Uh, he could be giving me the silent treatment for a week or angry because I never knew what his trigger was. It was something could trigger him today, tomorrow it won't, but then in three months it will. And he just, he tried, he tried to get them to get me in trouble, to, to make me have sex with him whenever he wanted it. He started, he started accusing me of cheating on him with my best friend, who was a female. I couldn't talk to my mom on the phone without him getting mad at me. He would talk to his mom for hours, sometimes a couple times a day. But if I talked to mom on the phone, he'd be mad at me. And I, I, like, I remember if I had to talk to mom about something, I would either do it when he's not there, or I would go behind two closed doors. So bedroom door closed, locked bathroom door closed so that he doesn't hear that I'm on the phone with my mom. Yeah, I'm not talking about him even, just to talk to her. But he could do whatever he wanted, when he wanted. I had to ask permission. If I wanted to go visit my friend, I had to ask permission. And he would tell me whether I could or I couldn't. If he told me I could and I went, I could pay for it three months later down the road. I might pay for it when I get home or I might pay for it for three months because he wanted me to make the decision to stay with him, even though he's telling me, yeah, it's okay. Go have fun. Um, I, sh I should have wanted to be there with him. Do you begin to self-regulate at this point as far as not going out with people and knowing what his reaction is going to be and avoiding being raged at or being yelled at? Or are you going to, or did you still do what you were going to do anyway? So it was a combination of both. If I thought he was going to be upset, I would, I would not go. And I would be like, and it, even if he said it was okay, I'd be like, are you sure? Like I can stay. Um, and for a while that worked, but then later he would still get mad down the road from it. And then, so I, I would start, um, I would go while he's at, while he was at work, but then he stopped working as much or he would come home early and I wouldn't know he was coming home. And so if I 
drove by the yard because I have to go around to get to the driveway. And when I drove by and I'm, I'm rushing, like I'm so stressed trying to make sure I get home before he gets home. And then I drive by and I see his car. I would just instantly feel sick to my stomach or his truck because I, he was home before me and I didn't know what I was going to walk into. I didn't know if today it was going to be okay or if I was going to be punished because I, like, by him, like, yelling and angry and, or silent treatment. And I just, I never knew what was going to happen. And, and was that going to, was that going to turn into an accusation that I'm cheating on him? It, it sounds like, you know, him wanting to join being a JW was him knowingly having this construct that he can control you by. Whereas before he didn't have that per se, but now with joining and being part of this group where he can see how the construct works, he can just slide himself into that spot knowing he's going to be in that spot because at that point, he can just always hark back to the controls of the religion that you are a part of. Whereas before, he couldn't do that really unless he's gone through the whole entire process the whole way. So you're like, oh, he's educated himself. He's done all the processes. He's allowed to do this now. Or at least in maybe in your mind that like that construct is there, if that makes sense. He had done it a little bit before, but this was to a whole different extent uh, because now he knows where he can refer to in the Bible or in the literature to say what I was doing wrong and how I need to be better as a wife. Um, but not only that, but now he has, now he's inf infiltrated my community and he also has a means to go talk to other people about me and influence other people into also playing a role in controlling me by going to the elders, for instance, trying to get them to tell me that I need to have sex with him whenever he wants it. Um, because he's now using them to do his bidding. Things were getting worse. It was the summer of 2011 and constantly he's telling me that he's going to leave me. And he would go through this cycle of um, where he's calm. Um, this would be like happy. We're doing things together. He's put me up on a pedestal and I was just amazing. And he recognized all the things he had done wrong prior to him coming into this stage of the cycle and he was sorry and he's going to be better and do better. And, uh, he, you know, even help out around the house and, and, and was fun to be around, uh, as, as things got worse over this next, over this couple of years, that stage started to change and it became like, um, the, 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 that fun, happy piece wasn't really there anymore. And the apologies turned into it's your fault and you made me and it's all, everything's on you. 
Um, and, and then if somewhere in that stage, um, where he's, he's wanting to draw me back in and he might quickly apologize and say, I'm sorry and I love you. And then right away he's going into, okay, that didn't work in this moment. And so I'm going to mope around or I'm not going to work as much, or I'm going to give you the silent treatment I'm going to expect more from you and I'm going to expect more from the kids. And, and for me, that looked like I'm constantly walking on eggshells. I'm trying to appease him by making his favorite meals, by doting on him, by checking on him, by just like being this peacemaker and being careful and being cautious. I always make sure I ask, or I don't even bother asking, just don't do what I wanted to do. Um, yeah, and then, and then he could be triggered by anything. Like I wouldn't even know what the trigger would be. A lot of times, sometimes he never would tell me, or or what triggered him today doesn't another time. So it's always it's always different. Like there was never any predictability. I never knew what to expect because it could change. Everything just changed so quickly, and and nothing was based on something that had happened before. And then he gets into that more explosive stage where like he's angry. Maybe he's, he's sitting there polishing off a, a bottle of hard liquor out of the bottle to try and like show a point. Um, that's when he would start calling me down and, you know, I'm never good enough and everything was my fault and I should have known and I should have known what he was thinking and, or I should have done something different and I should have been better. And then, and then he started getting into trying to use suicide as, as a way to try and manipulate me into getting what he wanted from me. Uh, so the first time that he had, he had done that and he's cycling through these different stages of being like calm and tension to this like explosive stage. And he's going through it like really, really quickly, sometimes within minutes and then cycle right back again. Uh, so he could be like, I love you and I'm sorry and I need you and, and I'm going to stay to, um, you know, I just want to talk and you need to be a better wife and you need to support me. Um, he said he was going to leave. And so I'm at a point in that I'm, this is when I'm setting a little bit more boundaries so that I can, um, so that we're looked after, so that everything, like his mood isn't going to determine my mood. And I'm no longer going to grovel at his feet and beg him to stay. And, and so he's escalating because I'm, he, he's desperately grasping to regain that power and control that he had over me. So then an event happens where your ex wants the kids to come back from a, a camping trip so he can tell them that he is leaving. And this is a really big escalation point where suicide threats or depression combined with it becomes a huge weapon. So walk us through this. As soon as he gets paid, he's going to leave and he's going to take the paycheck, all of it and all the money whatever little bit there was and he was going to leave and, and go move to this other city. And, and so I just, I'm like, 
okay, like you're moving on Friday. Do you have, do you have an apartment lined up? And he's like, well, no. And so it was probably one of the first times that I actually like kind of spoke back and was like not letting him use it to manipulate me. And I'm like, well, do you need help looking? Like that's only a few days away. If you're moving on Friday, you're going to need an apartment. And, uh, and so then he gets mad and you don't love me. And I'm like, I, I wasn't the one that was leaving. You're the one telling me you're leaving. And, um, he, he's demanding that I bring the kids back so that he can tell them that he's leaving and, and I'm not bringing the kids there to do that. Uh, especially when he's constantly telling me he's going to leave and he never does. Right. So bring the kids back and put them through that. Um, and so as this is happening and then he's getting, he's getting worse and he's getting angry and he's getting, yeah, it's just bad. And I, I was over at my friend's house or our friends, uh, they were JW too, but they lived across the street from us. And, and so if his tactics weren't working, like he wants me to, you know, go over there and talk to him. But at this time, I don't, I don't really feel, I don't feel safe alone with him right now. And so I told him if he wants to talk to me, he can come over there. And, uh, and then that doesn't work. And so he's getting angry and saying he's going to kill himself. And so I said, like, if you're going to, if you're suicidal, you need to go to the hospital. You need to get help. And, and then he'd cycle back and he, and he'd go through the new story and like, you know, I love you and I just miss you and I, all these things and it's not working. And so he just keeps, he keeps moving through this cycle. Uh, like I, I can't even tell you how many times he went through this cycle in, in just hours. And finally he says, okay, I'm ready to go to the hospital. And, and so I go over to the house with my, my friend's husband. Um, and there was another friend down. So the, the two men they were jw's and and so like we both knew them so they came over with me and he's angry and i'm and and i go and i sit on the floor beside him he's sitting in the chair and and the way he just like his body language and he and he shoved back in the chair like raised his hand to me and then shoved back in the chair and and the guys they told me to like go back over to the house with um our other friend and and so I did and they asked me after if he'd ever hit me because they're like what I saw tonight like he he was ready like he could have and so when they're done talking to him I go up to the hospital with him and um he invited everybody he knew he told everybody he called his family. He called every person he knows. Um, we had another friend that was in the hospital, and my ex would stay in the hallway to catch their visitors to come visit him. Um, but he's in the hospital because he's suicidal and because, uh, as he said, look how bad you let it get. You make me want to die. You make me want to kill myself. 
this is how bad you let it get. You let it get to this point. And, and he's, he's gathering all these visitors and getting all this attention. And then the, uh, he was there for a couple of days and then the, the doctor called me and told me that they were going to release him. And I, I remember begging, begging the doctor to not let him go, to keep him. And, but the doctor released him and told him not to come home, um, which he did, but not for long. He came and got stuff, and then he went camping with a bunch of friends. And, and the friends told me the whole time he was camping, he just complained about me and told them how awful I was and I was a horrible wife. Are you feeling guilty at this, like when this is happening? Like, how are you feeling? Obviously, you said you didn't want him to come home, but, you know, here you have someone who is blaming you for everything, is in this suicidal state, and at the same time, you had finally kind of stood up to him before that, so you're kind of at your own wit's end. And he's also threatening to go live on his own. So there's a lot of different things going on. So how are you feeling throughout this period? I was a hot mess. It was just like so much stress and anxiety, and, like, I don't, I, I have this responsibility to keep my family together, and yet doing that is, like, I'm suffering, and my kids are suffering. When he gets back from camping, he immediately is jumping back into the cycle again. So now, four days after he had been discharged from the hospital, we go through this whole thing all over again, and we get to the point again that he says, okay, I'm ready. Take me to the hospital. See, look how bad you let it get. You make me want to die. So it's like, if you don't give in to me and what I'm demanding from you, then I, I'm going to kill myself and it's going to be your fault. Or I'm, or I'm at least going to make you think that. And so this time when... My friend came with me over to the house to go get him. I go in to go change into the bedroom. And, and my friend says he just, he just collapses on the floor. Like it's like dramatic, throw himself onto the floor and like wailing. And then um, when we get up to the hospital and we have to stop at the nurse's desk to the nurse says to him, oh, back so soon? And she's like, he says, yeah, I just missed it here. You guys are so friendly. And I got to watch the baseball game. And I'm sitting there going, the fuck? And uh, he gets our friend to, like, come in the room. He's like, where is he? Get him to come in and visit. And uh, so... This time, now going through the same process all over again, I am, I am sitting there waiting for the doctor, and I am shaking so bad. Like my knees 
are shaking and they're going like together and I'm trying to stop it. And then they're, they're, you know, separate and then together. And, and it, it doesn't matter what I do or how I move it. I, I can't stop my legs from shaking. And then after talking to the doctor and I, I go to leave because now, okay, doctor's gone. I can go and it's late and I'm just booting it down the hallway because I am, I am just, I am done and I, I've got nothing in me and I am just completely trained and I'm exhausted and I just, I just want to lay down and cry and the doctor starts like he hollered at me and I heard him and I can hear him chasing me down the hallway, but I am speed walking out of there. Cause I just need to get out. And he ran and he ran around me and he ran in front of me. And he says, um, you know, there's more going on than what you can tell me in front of him. So I need you to tell me the rest of the story. And so that's when he was diagnosed with, with borderline personality disorder, traits of narcissistic personality disorder, and histrionic personality disorder traits. And um, it, it gave him, well, first the doctor, he tried to, he told me not to come in um, to visit unless I really wanted to. He told me not to bring his phone so he can't call people and tell them he's there. And the doctor was going to tell the nurses not to be in there fluffing his pillows. And he said, I'm going to keep him as long as I can so that he realizes this is not a place that he can come to to manipulate you into giving in to whatever it is that he wants. And that that was the beginning, uh, beginning of the end, really. It, uh, it gave him... It gave him power to be able to do whatever he wants now. You know that I have this diagnosis. You know that I am like this. You know these medications, these new medications that the doctor told me not to Google, <laughs> side effects. You know they have these side effects and you need to support me and you need to you know, go through this with me and you need to. And, and there was no responsibility on him. It was all on, it was all on me. And, uh, yeah, I, my mom booked tickets for me and the kids to go that, that September to go visit her and, and dad. And, um, it was free other than the taxes. So 300 and some bucks, three tickets were going for the month of September and man, did I ever need a break? And, uh, he said, yes. Cause of course I asked for permission and, uh, booked them right away. Once he said, yes, went out with friends, he's drinking, we get home and he's chasing me around the house, follow me around the house at me, yelling at me. If I see one cent of that money gone, you'd better not come back. And, um, Probably by about three o'clock in the morning, I, I went over next door to our friend's place. They were gone, but I had the code for their house because I was looking after their pets. And I figured he would just go to bed if I wasn't there for him 
to chase for hours on end. And uh, so I waited until I figured he was asleep before I came back. And actually, just even a, just a couple of years ago, I found out from my son that he uh, he went into his room and woke him up. So I, I never would have left had I known he would do that. He goes in and he wakes him up and from a dead sleep at three o'clock or two o'clock, whatever time it was in the morning and and uh, starts telling him, you know why you're going on this vacation. It's not a vacation. You are you guys are going to leave daddy and you're not coming back. And, you know, my son told me he just he was just sitting there crying and he didn't understand what's happening and why daddy woke him up in the middle of the night to do this to him. Uh, at one point, the kids, my son said he wanted to leave, but not, he wanted to move. And I said, what do you mean? Like, you want to move back to where we had come from on the other side of the country? And he's like, no, I want to move, but without daddy. And uh, that would have been, actually, it was probably not long after that happened that he had done that. And then things, I, I went and I did come back. It took everything on me to get on that airplane because prior to me coming back, it was just a few days before our flight to come back. And he's calling me and texting me and leaving voicemails. There's like 50 in over a matter of a couple of hours. And I'm just silencing them because I'm sitting there with my kids on my lap. And and uh, he was mad because my friend sent me a an email, like a chain email that said, send this to 10 of your best girlfriends and tell them you love them. And so they're cheating on him and this was really inappropriate. And so he was angry and threatening to make a scene when we got in the airport and like packing up to go on that flight was, I was just like crying and, and it took everything just to even open the suitcase, let alone get everything in there. And it was down to the last minute. And yeah, I wouldn't come back initially unless he promised to to get a hotel room for the night because I was terrified that he would just drive the car into an oncoming traffic to to take us all out with him. And um, so we stayed in the hotel for the night and then and then came back. And of course, nothing nothing changed. You know, and then my my friend was over one day and she was helping me. Uh, we were painting Mario blocks on the this bed for my son, and my ex comes out, or husband, I guess at the time he comes out, and he's angry and and says she needed to leave, and so and he's you know he's yelling and he's he's got that rage where his you know everything is different about him, his body, his eyes, he's he's scary when he gets angry like that. He, he had the door in my hand, like, an inside door, like, to the pantry or, you know, just yanks it out of my hand and is towering over me and angry and she's got to leave. And and so I I went and gathered her and the kids and we all left. And I ended up staying at her house because he, he wouldn't calm down. And I wasn't going back until he'd calmed down. And I stayed there for six weeks because uh, he wouldn't calm down. He couldn't go more than 24 hours um, before being in an outrage again. And and the only reason I went back is because the the elders in the congregation 
pressured me to go back repeatedly. And, and in order to continue to have God's favor, to have good standing in the congregation, I had to go back. And, and I wasn't ready, and I never should have, but I did. And then when I got back, it was, like, so devastating. Either I stay in this relationship or I'm, I'm going to die at Armageddon, and my kids are going to die, too, because I'm no longer going to be in God's favor. And I just, I just wanted it to be done. Like, I just, I just wanted to die. But if I die, then I leave my kids with him. And, and then I fought these, like, crazy intense feelings for a couple of weeks. And, and of course I couldn't, right? Like, there's no way I was going to leave my kids with him. Um, and so I come out of it, and I was just like, I made a promise to myself. Never again am I going to let them put that kind of pressure on me. It's not worth my life. And it was several months later that there was another big fight, lots of stuff in between, but there's this big fight and he, he's mad at me and he's angry, of course, and he's leaving and he's all of the, the things he's always, you know, is going on, but and and he took his wedding ring off and he threw it at me. And I and 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 he was gonna leave. And so I said, Okay, um, but if you leave, you don't come back. And um, or at least not until I've seen significant change over a long period of time. And of course he left. So he comes back the next day and my son is standing there and he's He's crying and looking at his dad and is and and trying to say hi to his dad and he doesn't know what's going on and they had heard him yelling the night before and and he wouldn't even talk to him. Like didn't even stop and talk to him. And then when I when I wouldn't take him back and my I had I had started counseling when he had first went to the hospital, they set me up with counseling. And my counselor um, made me promise to talk to the police. And and they told me, um, based on all the, these things that he was doing, and he kept threatening to like put a for sale sign on the house because I wouldn't let him come back and, and threatening to just come back anyway. And the police told me to, um, like, low-key, because they're not supposed to tell you. <laughs> they're like you need to change the locks on your doors and so I did in the middle of the night I waited the kids were sleeping and I and I changed the, the, the locks on the doors but he is going through that again of like the apologies and then the blaming me and the I'm awful to I'm going to um put you know a for sale sign I'm gonna come and I'm going to I'm gonna come there anyway uh, or I'm going to kick you out or you better get a lawyer. I've got a lawyer and you better get a, you better lawyer up. Oh, and, and, and he's using elders to call me. He wants me to meet him and, and I wouldn't, and, and he's getting them to call me and saying like, he's going to kill himself if you don't go meet with him. So if you don't feel safe, like meet him somewhere public, otherwise he's going to kill himself. And I was like, no, 
if you think he's going to kill himself, you need to go deal with it. You go meet with him. You call the, you know, the cops and get them to take him to the hospital. You take him to the hospital. That is not on me anymore. So he's using all these tactics. And when he told me to lawyer up, I went to try to get a lawyer. I went to the legal aid office because I had, I, at the time, I was just working part-time. And so I went to legal aid to get a lawyer, and he's texting me saying that he went to the police. Uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't give him the kids, but, that, like, it was also recommended that I don't hand the kids over. Uh, and that instead, like, at least not when he was in a rage. Uh, and I offered, like, I'll meet you in public somewhere. We can go swimming, right? And then at least you can see them. But I, I, I thought for sure he would use the kids. He would hurt the kids to hurt me or take off with them. Like, he's always saying he's going to leave. And he's always using suicide as a threat. And so that was, like, I was really genuinely fearful that he could either, like, hurt them or murder suicide to hurt me or take off with them, and I never see them again. And then he, and he tells me that he's called the police, and then he doesn't get what he's trying to get. He wants me to drop the kids off at 5 o'clock. And then he tells me he called children's services, and that, I, that this was parental alienation, and, and this is our caseworker. And so I'm in legal aid when he's sending me all these texts, in the same building so I walked down the hallway to children's services and I talked to the person that he told me he talked to and explained to them what's going on and they're like oh my god and um they're like do not hand the kids over to him um and then I ended up then he said he was going to um go to the police if he didn't have them the kids by five o'clock and he was going around town looking for me uh, he was calling people and texting people and showing up at people's houses trying to find me. And if he didn't have them by 5 o'clock, then he was going to go to the police and tell them, report the kids as having been kidnapped by their mother. And so now I'm thinking, then what? Are they going to... Are the kids going to go in foster care? Well, they have to sort this out because of, of all the things that he's going to go and because like, he's trying to use this as this control and then the kids are going to end up in foster care and like yeah it was just oh it was awful and I went to I talked to a friend uh, that used to be in policing and they told me about um, the emergency protection order program so I had I drove it was after hours and I drove to the city a couple hours away and I was able to get an emergency protection order it was the hardest like one of the hardest decisions to ever make because I loved him like I mean I loved him he was my childhood sweetheart right like we met when we were 16 we started dating when I was 17 um we'd been together for this was now like year 12 well married for 12 years but we were together a year and a half before we got married and and um Plus all the pressure from the the organization and having to, this responsibility to keep the marriage together and and so it was the hardest decision to make. But when I walked out of that room and I I'd been granted an emergency protection order, 
it was like this huge relief off my shoulders. And it's like this little kid on the playground that's being bullied. And then a bigger kid comes up and stands up behind you. And that bully loses their power. And um, we, we, we had to go back. You have to go back after 10 days um, to have it confirmed. And uh, when we go back, he has an opportunity to present. And he just, he wrote, there's so many lies. Like his affidavit, everything he wrote in his affidavit about me were all the things that he was doing to me. And um, so they had to put it over to a trial date. And so we go back to court after three months to have this reaffirmed. It has to be set to a trial because we have such different stories and affidavits. And at the trial, which I was supposed to get representation, um, but Legal Aid didn't represent it. So I represented myself. And he brought two JWs, men that were friends of ours, and um, they testified in court against me getting this protection order because they hadn't seen it for themselves. And, but I think they just need to sit in a room and work it out. And I had everything documented. And the only thing he could say was, as he's grasping for straws, like, yeah, well, she stayed out until 10 o'clock at night, expecting the judge to react to that. So they finally, I, I get it granted, the EPO. So now it's going to be on for a full year from the time uh, that I had originally got it. Uh, that judge wanted to put the kids back on it so he couldn't have any contact with them. And I I told the judge that he didn't need to because I had a, I had everything set up to get a parenting order and to get like police enforcement clauses in there and um, that we had a date coming up for the parenting order. And uh, so the judge conceded and, and didn't put the kids back on for that year. And then after that, it was court date after court date after court date after court date until the kids were at an age that court became no longer necessary. Um, so years of court. And for years, I represented myself in court and late at night, I've got, after the kids are in bed, and that's when I'd sit and do all the work to, to make applications or respond to applications, to my affidavits, to do research and research case law and put everything together and, you know, that organize the exhibits and, and evidence and like hours and hours and hours on end every time. So you're dealing with all of this and court and things actually get settled. And I'm going to use the word kind of here. And that's because when your daughter is 13 years old, that's when your ex concocts a plan to take your daughter. And this involves your sister-in-law as well. 
And this went back and forth for a while where secret calls are actually happening, where your sister-in-law and your ex are really trying to convince your daughter that you are bad. And they're really putting that into her and panic is put into her and she's just caught in this whirlwind. And he accuses you of physical abuse of your daughter, and they do a psych evaluation on her. And because of all of these lies that she's being fed, that she ends up believing, your ex then gets primary custody of her. So what was this whole entire experience like, this type of experience? And you know, how did you feel when this got granted? That was the hardest because that's my girl and I had to work so hard because to build that relationship with her that I had to accept she believed what she believed and and it was her perspective and it was real to her even if it was the result of what someone else is filling her head with it was real to her And so I had to approach building that relationship with her from that perspective. And and in the meantime, he's saying all these horrible things about me and reading emails from lawyers and like making up this stuff about the EPO and me keeping them from him and trying to turn them against me. And, and, you know, our son was older and always just a little bit more mature beyond his years. And so he didn't fall prey to it. And so he really focused on our daughter and she was younger and it worked. And I I fought so hard, but eventually after living with him, she saw through it. When they're younger, they're wanting me to answer to all these things that he had put to them. And I wouldn't because they were too young to hear all of that and they didn't need to know. And it wasn't going to help. It wasn't going to, it was just hurt them. And so she moved back home. She was 16 and uh, he was absolutely outraged. She wanted, she said she wanted to much earlier, but she was scared of his reaction, which she was right to be. Uh, it, It was not good. And then um, she apologized to me in the kitchen. We're standing there one day, she's 17 now. And she's like, mama, I am so sorry for all the things I said to you and about you. Because all all of her friends thought I was horrible until they met me. They're like, I don't understand why she doesn't like her mom. (laughs) And then um, she apologized and she says, mama, I'm so sorry for all the things I said to you, all the things I said about you. She said, I didn't realize that at the time, but everything I said was exactly all the things daddy was saying to me about you. No, like, I know, honey, I know. She's like, and and it's okay. She's like, you do? How do you know that? And I'm like, it's nothing I'd never heard before. And none of it is anything that any 13-year-old comes up with on their own. And she, she still struggles with her relationship with her dad as he goes months that he won't talk to her uh, for whatever some perceived wrong 
but she's learning too, to have her boundaries and to decide what she wants for a relationship, what she can do to protect herself and her boundaries and enforce her boundaries, um, to what degree she maintains the relationship. But it, it kills me that, you know, she wants to have that with her dad. It's her dad. And she can't. She can't trust him to, to be there for her consistently. And how has your healing process been in the aftermath? You know, when you've gone through a pattern of abuse for a long time, and you've had the ideals indoctrinated in you that are taught by JWs about the role of women and that of men, it takes a long time to undo that. Um, so I had done a lot of healing from this. And, and then it became really important for me to be able to use what I had been through, to use my experiences um, and my knowledge to be able to give back to others who went through this or are going through this. Uh, and I'd been thinking for, for quite a while, I'd been thinking about volunteering at a women's shelter. Uh, and then a job came up. And I, and I, and I applied for the job and I, and I got the job. I ended up working for seven years in the, in the women's shelter, in different roles within the shelter, um, with youth, with, with the women, with the kids, groups, public education in the schools, frontline, crisis line, uh, advocating for them. It really meant a lot. It was really empowering to be able to, uh, later take that and use it to give back to others and, and to empower other women and support other women. And, and w when I'm doing that, I'm not telling them my story. They don't know what I had been through, but they, but they feel the compassion and the genuineness. And actually, one, one client once told my supervisor, I wasn't there, but they had stopped in and they asked if I was there and, uh, and I wasn't. And so they said, oh, you know, I, I just, I wish she was here. I could talk to her that she really knows how to empower women. And, you know, other than next to being a good mom, I can't think of any other you know, any better compliment than that to be able to, to be able to empower somebody else that has been through something else, um, really difficult or, you know, a, an abusive situation or a violent situation to be able to help them walk through all of the, all of the pieces of it, like, like the emotions of it. But then it's also all the things that you have to do in order to be able to move forward. And if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would they be? Keep tracking. Don't give up. Um, there are so many supports out there. There are so many um, people who have been through it too. No situation is the same, but there are, there are people who have been through, through it too and that, that understand. So don't give up until you get the, the help that you, that you need. Find your voice and get loud and take up space 
and throw away all of those like guilt and shame, uh, all those things that no longer serve you. It's not selfish to take care of yourself. Well, Parker, I really want to thank you for being our guest today, sharing your story and you know, yours is a story that just escalates and escalates and escalates. And it's something that everyone out there can resonate with. And you just did a really good job telling everything today and sharing your feelings of what was going on and, you know, how you were handling everything. And you just did a great job. And I can't thank you enough for being our guest here today. Thank you. Well, thank you, Parker, once again for being here with us today. And if you want to be a guest like Parker was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you are someone that needs support, we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. It is a wonderful group of people on there, and you can share your experiences and make friends too. So if you need support, join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number and email address and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you are in. DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and organization. So if you need extra support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. And we have another friend of the show called Shelter Movers, and Shelter Movers can be found at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. It's a volunteer organization, a donor-supported charitable organization as well. It is currently only in Canada, but they're looking to move into the United States. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of domestic violence. They help you to safety, get all of your things out of your home and into storage, all of your belongings into storage, and they can do this for your pets and livestock too. It's a wonderful organization, so if you need help from them or just want to donate to them, please go to sheltermovers.com. And that is it for today's episode. So for myself and Parker, we hope you have a good night.